It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. And welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast. In this season of 12 episodes, we devote our time to the wonders of water. And in this episode five, we head to the island of Seal in the Inner Hebrides to join poet and wild wanderer Kenneth Stephen as he muses on the dangerous waters that surge around his home island. We learn lots about island life and the natural beauty to be found in this remote region of Scotland. Plus, Kenneth explores the tales and legends that have grown up around the nearby Corryvreckan Whirlpool, one of the world's most perilous stretches of water. And later, I'm joined again by the podcast team to reveal our sounds of the week and to delve into the podcast postbag. But for now, let's head off to the remote island of Seal. I've come down to Kuen, which is at the very bottom, the very south end of the Isle of Seal, where Christina and I live. And I've chosen a rather magnificent Sunday afternoon. I've chosen it because it is so wonderfully fine. And I'm going to mention it because I'm hearing it at this moment. Right beside, I say that I'm at the south end of, of Seal. I'm at that point where the little ferry goes over to our neighbouring island of Ling, L-U-I-N-G. And that sound in the background is the sound of the little car ferry that plies back and forth fairly regularly at this time of year. Now its engine's just starting up to go over that short crossing, all of, I don't know, 100 metres or something. But it's a mighty dangerous swell. It's a very, very dangerous bit of water. 
it would be a brave man indeed or a brave person who had the courage to go across it. And as I mentioned that, I'm led to mentioning the water itself because I see a cormorant being driven through the sound um, crosswise. The current is just extraordinary, hence the dangers of ever thinking of swimming it. And that cormorant is having a free ride, really, to the far end of the island of Ling, the distant part from me. It's an extraordinarily turbulent bit of water. And it's partly because of all the currents, all the channels that are created by the Corryvreckan, I suspect. I'm watching the ferry there swirling its way around uh, that, those hundred metres over to Ling. And the, it's extraordinary to see that amazing, the power of that ferry being swept away by the sheer strength of the current. And one can only imagine what it would do to a human being who dared to, to swim it. It's a very, very dangerous bit of water. To give a little bit more of a sense of where I am this beautiful afternoon, so closest to me, just down below me, the very end of the island of Seal, a hundred metres across perhaps, or maybe a little bit more, there's the island of, of Ling, with its low hills, a few cottages, and I can see the pier on the other side with its cars waiting for the ferry on the far side. And there's another cormorant driving its way through a yard or less above the, above the water, driving through the sound. So it's a long stretch of water that separates the two islands and that channel of water pushing its way through from east to west. And at that western end of the channel, so I'm looking now in its direction, at that western edge I can see the ramparts of, the distant ramparts of the island of Mull, looking particularly fine today, chiselled beautifully in the late afternoon light. Why do I choose to come here? Well, it's a different spot to any that I've chosen to record hitherto. I know, though, that it's full of wildlife, full of wild things. There goes a heron, battling its way across with wonderful wingbeat. I've spoken to the, the ferryman who's worked for many years operating um, the boat that goes, the boat that I have just seen going between Seal and Ling, um, interviewed him actually for, for Country File a year or so back, and Keith mentioned with a good chuckle just how often he's seen otters around here. So many otters that really they're, they're to a penny. There's nothing special about the otters. They're still wonderful for him to see, but they are so usual that they cease to be of great import, of huge strangeness. It's a place suffused with, with wildlife. The great thing is that folk have worked and are continuing to work for greater marine protection for these wonderful waters. And that means that, unlike many others, sadly, they're extremely rich in shellfish and in other marine life. Well, that means that it's, it's a positive knock-on. It's a virtuous circle. It means that there are dolphins. It means there are porpoises. It means that down at the Corrie Vrecken, there are whales often, many types of whale. 
It's just wonderfully exciting water. Um, there's much more chance, one feels, of exciting glimpses of marine life, of marine mammals. Looking down here onto the shores at Kuen, I see uh, a man, doubtless a, a fisherman, um, working away on, on one of his boats. There's not really much in the way of formal fishing, although I'm also looking straight beside me to another pier, a different pier to where the ferry boat is normally stationed, and there are lots of lobster creels, hundreds of lobster creels, and possibly for crabs as well, crabs as well. So it's good, rich water. I think of a time when Christina and I were here once, and literally just down below where I'm sitting making this recording, there was little canoe in the water, and the ferryman's cottage. I can see from here, and um, a canoe boat belonging to the the ferry woman, um, another of the the people who operates that craft, which probably you can hear in the background now, coming back towards towards Seal. And in that canoe was a little girl. That was her daughter. And they were effectively training her to get used to being out on the water. And I. I really quite wish that we had recorded that conversation because they were shouting to her from the house. She was in the canoe, she was in a life jacket, she was entirely safe and sound in that canoe, but she was protesting. She didn't want to be there. And they were getting her used to being out on the water um, and to being in a different environment, an environment that she would grow up with, that she would have all around her. <laughs> and that wonderful conversation that evening, whatever time of the year it was, between the two of them, the fairy woman calling from the house to reassure her and the little girl moaning, very unhappy in the canoe, really grumpy at being left there on her own and being detached from the rest of the family. It was it was quite unique. For me as a writer, I thought, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the kind of thing that you, that you love to see and to hear because it's the kind of unique encounter with a different story in the world. And I loved it. There's a little boat, not a fishing boat, not a ferry boat, a boat coming through that channel, that sound that I've mentioned before, the sound that is plied by the ferry. And it's extraordinary to see the struggle that it's having because it's working against, against the, 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 the currents. The currents, as I mentioned, are driving east to west, effectively, and that little boat is coming from west to east, and it's, it's making hardly any headway at all. Going the other way, boats, it's extraordinarily amusing to see them because boats fly across. They really don't need any engine power whatsoever. Canoeists will be the same. They're just absolutely pushed through, blown through it. So it's a special place. About a month ago, I took the ferry over to the island of Ling with the ferry that I've been talking about. I went to the other side. I didn't have any, any bicycle with me. I had only my feet and my legs, and it was a reasonable day, although nothing like as beautiful as today. And I walked around that west west coast, so around the west side from where I am sitting now and right the way down the spine of the island. And all the way 
all the way until I came to the main village, the main settlement on, on Ling. All the way I was encountering extraordinary, weird rock carvings, as it were. Little cliffs, little bits of quarry, because this is where the quarrymen have been so busy over the years. It's thinking of other aspects of, of the wild world. We're blessed with all manner of, of, of bird life here. I suppose, again, it's part of that virtuous circle. Because the seas are allowed, are encouraged to be so rich, so the, the bottoms of the little fjords that we have in profusion are not scooped up and scoured as they have been in so many other places. They're allowed to live and to live richly. And down below me, here on this bit of shore, I know I would usually be seeing a great amount of old shells because the shellfish are, are gathered by various men for harvesting. And a lady just coming past me now from the island of Ling with her two children, a babe in arms and a wee one. And as for others, it's lovely to have little moments of, of encounter, even if they're at a distance. So that lady's smiling to me and me pausing for a second to smile back. And as for all of us at this strange time of corona, it's lovely to have these momentary encounters with community because community is the thing that has been taken away from us. Well, I can more or less see from where I am. I've now stood up and I'm between these two piers looking out over the shore, looking straight west towards the highest point on the island of Mull, which is Ben Moore. And on that eastern edge, it's amazing to see all those miles of coastline and not a single piece of habitation. Not a single croft or cottage or farm or castle is visible whatsoever. That eastern side and southern side of Mull is barely inhabited at all. And very dramatic cliffs all the way along and a little bit inland. I can't see it quite from here. I could if my position were not much different. I would be able to see the highest point on the island of Mull, which is Ben Moore. And there goes a canoeist charging through the straits. And I would quite love to experience that myself sometime. Poor canoeist though I am. Um, I would not do it. They're, they're not, as I said at the very beginning of this, these waters are, are certainly not for the faint-hearted. They're for the strong, strong swimmer, for the strong rower. But it's a most magnificent place and lovely to come to at any time. And I think I want to end by saying how well kept it is, how well preserved it is. I'm sure there's, there's still more that could be done, more that perhaps is being done to protect these wonderful waters from despoilation. But what has been done is tremendous. 
and it's testament to much hard work. And it's in many ways made this place, this whole area south of Oban, on this bit of the west of Scotland, it's made it wonderfully, wonderfully rich and strong in its natural diversity. Well, I'm not actually down at the Corryvreckan Whirlpool today. And uh, despite the fact that there isn't a gale, and that will the reason for mentioning gales will become apparent later. Uh, the reason, that even though there isn't a gale, it's it's mighty cold. There was ice this morning and and snow in the hills. So down there on the open water, it will be utterly, indescribably cold. To give a little bit of a sense of the place that I'm describing, uh, the the Reckon lies at the end above the north end of the island of Jura. And that north end of Jura is, is actually quite, although it's you know, a, mile, a few miles wide at its middle point, Jura, at the top end, it's, it's kind of like a pencil point. Uh, that's the, that's the, the tip of it, the nub of it. Um, cliffy, hummocky ground. The Corryvreckan Whirlpool, one of the largest whirlpools in the world, lies out to the north of that, in a channel of water that separates the Isle of Jura from the Isle of Scarba. And it's very relevant, actually, that uh, Scarba, the name of Scarba, um, has a, a Norwegian derivation, a Norse derivation. It simply means, a lot of these Norse names for islands are very, very simple. It simply means sharp island. And it's well named and very obviously named because Scarba, that wall of um, the the south face of Scarba, reaches perhaps a thousand feet up into the sky from there. So imagine, first of all, the north end of this nub of Jura, and you are facing this great, magnificent slate-grey wall of Scarba. In between these two things, these two landfalls, you have um, the, on the western edge of, of uh, the western edge of it, of that channel of water, the Straits of Corryvreckan, the Great Whirlpool. Now, to say a little bit more about about Corryvreckan, it's it, there are days when when one could imagine that it would be fairly easy to go through it with a with a small boat. Um, it bubbles away. There is to describe a little bit about how it works, why it is a whirlpool. There is a spike of rock that rises from far underneath and rises, as far as I know, quite high to the surface of the water. The tides which come in from opposing sides of the channel swirl round that spike and create the whirlpool. It's effectively the spike in the water that I think, I think, um, is the real catalyst for the, for the whirlpool. 
on ordinary days, as I say, if you're to go down there, a day like today, not particularly wild, not stormy, the water is bubbling. You're aware of something being there, a presence being there. But it would look innocuous enough. And indeed, George Orwell famously, infamously tried to go across um, in a wooden boat, row across and got himself into terrible dangers had he not um, had he not been rescued most fortuitously um, then we would never have had 1984 because that's what he was writing on the island of Jura anyway that's another story so it looks you can see why Orwell and anyone else would think that on certain days this whirlpool is really not doesn't present a great danger there are other days Usually a couple every month when the Corryvreckan is, well, it's described as a Corryvreckan special by the boat, by the people who run boat tours to it. And then you really have a sense of whirlpool. You, there, there is a distinct step in the water. That's how I would describe it. So if you imagine water disappearing down a plug, that's the, the crudest, but the best example I can think of it. You imagine we've all seen water going down a plug and that gap as it funnels just over the plug itself where the water is gathering to go down and there's a real step in the water as it's being sucked down. That's, there is something of that sense of whirlpool on these special days. So at its worst, it's, it's very dramatic and very whirlpool-like. As you would guess, with a story like this, there have grown up a good number of, of legends um, around it. I was going to say swirled around it. And the main story, the main legend, concerns a prince called Brecan. So the Corrie Brecan, the, the, the pool of, of Brecon, or whatever the Corrie word it means in Gaelic. I'm not actually sure of it, but it's of Brecon, Brecon's whatever. Brecon was reputedly, if you follow the legend, a Norwegian prince. He fell in love with a girl from the island of Jura. And according to the story, her father consented to the marriage on one condition. Sounds very much like a fairy tale, a legend. The one condition being that Brecon show his skill and courage by anchoring his boat for three days and nights in the whirlpool. So Brendan Julie accepts this challenge and goes back to Norway to have three cables made, three strong ropes. One of hemp, one of wool, which always seems terribly thin to me, but there we are, and one made of maiden's hair. Well, again, according to the legend, the women of Norway gladly cut off their hair um, for the plaiting of this rope. It was believed that their purity and innocence, uh, the wonder of these virgins and their hair, would give the rope extra strength to withstand the strain of the Corryvreckan and of all the currents and tides that I have mentioned. So in due course, Brendan Brecken rather returns to anchor in the whirlpool as he has been challenged to do. 
on the first night, the hemp rope phrase. But uh, Brecken and his men, because we believe that there were others, according to legend, there were others in the boat, they survive. They live to tell the tale. The second night comes, and they have the woolen rope, this one in which I have so little faith. And that parts, um, no surprise there, in strong winds. But, again, they live to tell the tale, they survive the night. Then comes the final night, the third night, and they set the plaited cable of hair, of maiden's hair, and all goes well until a gale snaps the rope. And it's a gale, it's a storm, a full storm, and gosh, do I know what that's like there at the Cory Vrecken. The boat is duly sucked under by the current, which I can well believe possible, and poor Brecken is drowned. His body brought ashore by one of his his men, one of his crewmen, to be buried in what is known to this very day as the King's Cave. And when the tale was duly carried back to Brecken's home bit of country in Norway, one of the young Norwegian girls who had given her hair for the rope was consumed with grief because obviously she had not been as chaste as she first had claimed. So that is the sad story of Brecken, the legend of, of Brecken and, and of, of the Cory Brecken. A little bit of a coda to it, though, because I love looking for possible bits of truth in stories like that, in, in local lore, in legends. There are, of course, seeds of what may prove to be, what might have proved to be truth behind what on the surface is is a fictitious rendering and imaginative, a fairy story. Two things here. First of all, there's the cave, the fact that King's Cave survives to this day. And when you take one of the wildlife trips around through the Gulf of the Corryvreckan from one side of it to the other, and this place is special. The King's Cave is there. When you're going past with the, one of the wildlife tours, one or other of them, they will always point out where the burial of Brecon is supposed to, to be. And it's very much a, a grave. No reason not to believe that. The other part, um, I think, is even more exciting and even greater potential proof of the veracity of this wonderful legend. And that is that a few years ago, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a wonderful area. All of this area around where I live is priceless for diving. Marvellous, clean, cold waters and well protected, well preserved um, from, from, uh, you know, the, from bad fishing, so to speak. Someone from a diving group was down in the Corrie Brecon, And to their great joy, they came up with a golden torque which I don't know if it was dated before it went into a museum, and I do not know, I cannot find where this torque that might have belonged to Brecken has now, um, where it's been taken. But at any rate, he came up with a golden arm torque. Um, well, how much of a sign that would be of the truth that this was the torque, the gold torque that Brecken had been wearing when the vessel went down 
when he was pulled into the water and tragically drowned in his pursuit of the girl from Jura. I like to believe that that bit, and all of it in fact, is really based on a true story. Well, there's Kenneth on dangerous waters of the Western Isles and a lovely escape to somewhere far away, particularly as we're in lockdown. And it seems even further than ever. So thank you, Kenneth, for taking us to these wild places. Talking of wild places, I'm joined in the virtual studio by my good friends, Hannah and Jack, to rummage through the podcast post bag, talk about Sound of the Week and chat about all things wild and wonderful. Hello, chaps. Lovely to see you. Hello, nice to see you. Hello. So, Kenneth Whirlpools and Wild Waters, have you have, have either of you had any wild experiences on the water? Any thrilling tales of wild and dangerous rides on water? Jack, you look like you've got something to say. Well, I remember quite a few years ago, I, I think it was when I was an explorer scout, we went uh, coasteering. I can't remember where it was. It, it would have been somewhere in Wales. And uh, I think it was the first time I'd experienced how powerful the sea was just for the benefit of listeners what is co-steering so co-steering is it sounds like the most crazy activity essentially you get wet suited up and then you're just sort of kind of partly bouldering around sort of cliff edges i guess yeah. but not not a severe cliff so cl- clambering around the cliffs clambering around the cliffs sort of jumping off some of the rocks into the some deep pools and that sort of stuff it's a it's good fun and terrifying and terrifying as well yeah <laughs> A few terrifying points. I remember one bit jumping in and they said, you're going to have to swim hard because uh, the tide's quite strong. And it was the first time I experienced sort of swimming, but not getting anywhere because the tide's just sort of keeping you in place and you've really got to push through it. I don't think you ever experienced water being able to sort of control you that much before. It was very odd, odd experience. Okay, but you're, we're lucky that you're here. Well, we're very lucky that you're here to... <laughs> It reminds me of, I'm not going to go into this long story, but it reminds me very much of my stag weekend in South Brecon Beacons doing gorge walking. And I definitely, the closest to death I've ever been in my life was on an organised gorge walk. And uh, those who were there will remember the terrible tales and maybe in a later podcast we can go into the, it still chills my soul. But anyway, Kenneth, thank you for that. Um, There's a film called I Know Where I'm Going, where the Corrie Vrecken whirlpool is one of the sort of surprise stars, which is a a 1945 black and white film. There's a desperate attempt to get to an island in a tiny rowing boat across this whirlpool. It's a brilliant film. I Know Where I'm Going. Um, If ever you find it in a charity shop or something, or it's sort of on a matinee Saturday afternoon on this like charming British films. Anyway... Moving swiftly on from whirlpools and near-death experiences, and it's definitely time to delve into the podcast postbag, and it's been quite a busy week for us. So, um, Hannah, would you like to kick us off with something exciting? Yes, I have a contender for long-distance listener of the week. Hooray! This is from Martin. And Martin says, I have discovered the podcast in early December and have been listening from Chicago since then. Catching up on the episodes and their content has been an amazing de-stressor. You and your team, yes, create amazing stories. I have just one request, if possible. Since you are not restricted by on-air time block, would you consider in future episodes to include at the end of the episode a two-minute soundscape of just the nature sounds of the place you have visited, just to get that immersion of space and sound? Looking forward to the current season. Oh. 
That's lovely. All the way from Chicago. Um, that's a really lovely idea. And gosh, it's one of those things where when you're out there in nature recording, as we all have done, you sort of go, oh, I better say something in case people just drift off. But actually, maybe there's a, maybe there's a sort of real joy in just letting it breathe even more. So I think that's, I don't know, what, what do you think? Do you think we should, that's something we should look into in the future? Definitely. Let's look into it. Watch this space or listen out for these spaces. <laughs> har har. Jack, how about you? Have you got any um, anything for... Yeah, we got a message in from Bridget. She wrote in just to say she just listened to the first podcast of the season, uh, the one of the seven bore. She mentioned how the suspense was palpable and uh, she loved your comments as it was arriving. She mentioned how she was listening to the episode on her walk during a really grey, rainy afternoon. And uh, she said there's not a bird in sight, there's sort of no nature around her, but she was transported by the episode. Could imagine what it was like there and uh, how much she enjoyed that. Oh, that's that's lovely. That's lovely. It was a, it was a really fun episode to make. And it's good. And it does hold up re-listening. I do enjoy listening back to that because it's sort of epic coming of something big and scary. Um, I've got another contender for long distance listener of the week, and I think I right. my my, <laughs> my, um, my knowledge of American geography is okay. I think so. I think California, a bit further away than Orange County, California. We've got Taz Pengi on Twitter who enjoyed the dung beetle joke from episode three, which I'm not going to repeat, but you have to listen to episode three right to the very end. And he made some very kind comments about the podcast. I think yeah, we are very happy to have Twitter users uh, commenting and we would love to include more. You can contact us at countryfilemag. That's our, that's our Twitter handle. And do send us thoughts and we will try and use as many as we can in the podcast. Plus, obviously, you can email me, editor at countryfire.com. Always looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And quite a lot of these get printed in the magazine as well as being read out by the lovely team here. I think you've got another, Hannah. I can see you're itching to... You've got uh, one, one from Apple Podcasts, by the look of things. I have a particularly lovely review from Hallelujah Hal. They give us a five-star review and they detail what each star is awarded for. So the first star is because the podcast is presented by three enthusiastic team members, which we are. The second star is because it's like we're saying, come along with us and we'll discover the countryside together. Lovely. The third star is because it's like having a pal from your support bubble in your pocket. The fourth star is because we're really informative, inspiring and thoughtful. And the final star, and the most important star is because of the frequent excursions to God's own country, by which, obviously, they mean Wales. That's a lovely, lovely review. And we read them out here because it actually sort of stirs us into a sort of greater effort and gives us a real boost to hear things like that because it's quite a lonely job, all of us in our three rooms and out alone recording things. Um, so it's, it's great to get some feedback and feel that what we're doing is appreciated because we put a lot of love and passion into these things and it's great to get some of that back. Talking about going out and recording, it's time for Sound of the Week. And I've got one for you guys, which I recorded really, really locally to me, but I think it's tremendous and um, I'd like to share it with you. So here we go.
So those were some jackdaws roosting over the local hospital here in Abergavenny. And they come around dusk flying over the houses here in their thousands, actually. There must be two or three thousand of them. It's a really impressive sight. And they swirl around. They do these kind of sky dances and then they settle in the tallest trees around the hospital and make this sort of cacophonous... I guess they're all telling each other bedtime stories before they roost. So I went out there and avoided all the droppings and managed to... I, I used my phone for that. Just skipped out after, you know, between homeschool and cooking and grabbed a few seconds of jackdaw calls. But we don't want to listen to my recordings. We really want to get listeners' recordings of from all over the country of just lovely little moments, wild moments, noisy moments, things that evoke the countryside. And we'd love to feature them in the show just to give us all a little taste of little parts of the countryside. What's the best way for people to record and send in stuff? So just pretty simple, just record it on whatever device is handy to you. And then either WeTransfer, Dropbox, one of those services is probably easiest to get it over because their files are usually a bit bigger than emails can take. And then you can just send them to editor at countryfile.com. Perfect. Yeah, no, it'd be lovely to get them. And we'd love to listen to them. It just gives us a little taste of places that we can't reach at the moment. And that's it for this week. Join us next week for a proper plod, splosh and crunch cast as I head out into the local floods to capture a little bit of the atmosphere of how the landscape is transformed when it's covered in water, find some wonderful wildlife and talk about flooding and some of the issues around it. So I hope you'll enjoy joining me for that. But for now, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Goodbye.